Greetings, faithful listener, and happy new year. Uh, The sermon that follows was a little bit impromptu. We had a wild start to the new year, and it actually is only a partial recording because some dummy, me, forgot to replace the batteries in the lav mic. And so you only have a partial recording of about 15 to 20 minutes, but you might find some value in those portions of the sermon. I don't have much of a manuscript this either due to the circumstances. And so I will post some notes online, but I'm not sure how helpful they will be in working through Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. That said, enjoy what portion of the recording you do have. Be well. Well, Happy New Year. We are all in trouble this morning. Mostly it's just me, but you're in here with me, so tell you what the scenario is. I enjoyed New Year's yesterday, as I hope you all did. Watched both football games, mostly, almost in their entirety, I think. Uh, Great games, great endings, you know. Ohio State lost on that missed field goal right at the stroke of midnight, and all of God's people rejoiced. They would not unjustly come to the national championship. I played a little Ticket to Ride, which is a nerdy board game. Real ones know what that's all about. And I drifted off to sleep somewhere at around 12.30. This is not my usual custom on a Saturday night. Sunday morning church, I often say, is a Saturday night decision. Church in 2023 was a 2022 decision. And yet, I did not go to sleep. Why, you might ask? Well, because I did not anticipate preaching this morning. Dan was slated to be with us and delivering the message, as your bulletin reflects James chapter 1, 19 through 21, and our scripture readings, they were consistent with that. And if you've paid attention, you notice that I'm not Dan, and I am not preaching from James. Instead, I am preaching from Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to pick up at verse 18, where we left off Last week, Dan called me, well, he didn't call me, he texted me this morning and informed me that he has come down with the flu, and so you can be praying for him. Unfortunately for me, I just recently preached to you that emergency sermon that I keep in my back pocket probably four or five months ago. And so instead of boring you by allowing you to hear the same sermon more than once, I decided to try to throw something together this morning in a few hours. Now you might think, that puts you in for a shorter sermon. It may, I don't know. But I think that would probably be unlikely because usually what happens when I'm preparing during the week is I'm going, this gets to stay in, this is most important, and all of this other stuff has to go out. And I'm also finding ways to restrain myself from dominating the word that I'm preaching, if that makes sense. You might find some more personal illustrations and us getting a little bit more off course this morning. That said, we are going to go through Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. And you might be thinking, did you just use all of that background as your introduction instead of creating one? And you would be right. So, our main idea, Matthew chapter 9, is this. Take heart, the bridegroom brings joy. 
no outline for you this morning, just the main idea. That's dangerous. Let's pray, and we'll begin. Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, even when we find ourselves in weakness and in need. We are needful of it, even when we think ourselves strong. And so we ask that you would once more pour out your grace upon your people, that you would cause us to encourage one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs this morning, that we would be encouraged as we hear in the word proclaimed, not the voice of a mere man, but your voice, God. We pray that your word would act as a hammer on our hearts, breaking apart the hardness that is so often found there when we cling to our sins rather than to Christ. Lead us to repentance once more this morning. And as we start this new year by submitting ourselves to what you would say, we ask that you would fill our heads with your holy words, our hearts with holy affections, and our bellies with holy laughter. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin by setting the stage a little bit, as is our custom, and this will be especially important to you sinners who skipped church last week, okay? So, so pay attention. <laughs> Matthew is writing his gospel to the end of convincing us that Jesus is the promised Messiah King. And so he has laid out for us Jesus' credentials in those first few chapters, and then began presenting us with Jesus' use of his authority. Jesus comes from the right family. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew wants us to recognize that he is going to bring blessing to the nations. He very purposefully includes women and Gentile women, scandalous women, in Matthew's genealogy to demonstrate that the family Jesus comes from anticipates the family that he has come for. Indeed, Jesus' mission is wrapped up in his name, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came, he tells us in Matthew chapter 9 and in verse 13, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus came to save sinners, not to establish a geopolitical nation, as many thought, but to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Wherever Jesus goes, just like Mary's little lamb, the kingdom is sure to follow. Jesus comes from the right family. He's got the right pedigree. Then in chapter 2, we see that he fulfills the right prophecies. He's conceived in the womb of a virgin. He's born in Bethlehem. Even his geographical movements signal us to his supreme importance and significance. Like Moses, his life is threatened as a child and he is forced to flee from the murderous reign of an evil king. Like Israel, he is called out of Egypt, passes through waters, the waters of baptism, goes into the wilderness where he is tempted and tried. Then he comes to a mountain where God's word is spoken. Jesus comes from the right 
family, he fulfills the right prophecies, and he has the right endorsements. At his baptism, we get a snapshot of the life of God. As Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, rests upon him, anoints him as God's king and God's son, and the voice of the Father echoes out, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All of this is conspiring together to make Matthew's point. Jesus is the one you have been waiting for. He is the great deliverer. Jesus begins his ministry by saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And on that holy mountain, he preaches God's words. In the Sermon on the Mount, he is brazen enough not to quote other rabbis and other teachers, but to speak with the authority of God. He gives us a right interpretation of the law and calls all who will hear his words to himself and to holiness. He says, any who would enter the kingdom must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he presses on us to recognize that we ourselves are not righteous that we need a righteousness outside of ourselves if we are to be made right with God. We can never make ourselves good enough, pretty enough, great enough to earn God's favor. It must be given to us. We must be made right with God, not on the basis of our own goodness, but on the basis of God's graciousness. And so Jesus says, those who enter the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit those who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt, dead in their sins, enemies of God. Those sorts of people who come to me in faith and trust in me as their king, they inherit the kingdom. Those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, they will be filled. And those who are filled with the righteousness that comes from Christ, live righteous lives. As they grow in godliness, Jesus calls his people to himself and to holiness. He brings people into the kingdom through faith in himself, by his grace, and he transforms them so that they start living like kingdom citizens. He closes that sermon by calling all who are in earshot to build their lives on his word. He says, those who do my word, who listen to my word, are like a man who built his house on the rock, secure, firm, enduring, lasting. And those who refuse my words, they are like a man who built his house on sand. Here today, gone tomorrow. When he finishes speaking, crowds are astonished at his teaching because he teaches as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Matthew is demonstrating for us that Jesus doesn't just have the credentials of a king. He doesn't just talk like a king. He exercises the authority of a king. Jesus begins to heal as he comes down that holy mountain. A leper approaches him and says, you can make me clean if you will. Jesus says, I will be clean. He cleanses the leper with a touch 
a centurion man, a Roman Gentile man, comes to him and says, my servant is at home. He's, he's like paralyzed, can't move. He's dreadfully sick, but you can make him well. And Jesus heals him with a word from a distance. Finally, he makes his way to Peter's house and discovers Peter's mother-in-law is ill. He heals her fever with a word and a touch. He heals a host of others. Then Matthew really starts escalating things for us. Remember, he's organized all of these things in a uh, topical manner in order to emphasize particular points. And so now he shifts and shows us Jesus doesn't just command sickness. He commands the seeds and nature. Disciples are in a boat, a great sea, a great sea storm rises up, a seismos, megos. The disciples come save us, we're dying. And Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves, and they listen. They ask the question, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we get our answer in the next section when Jesus casts demons into pigs and ultimately into the sea. Before he casts out those demons, they fall down before him and answer the disciples' question by saying, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. He's the God-man, the second Adam, the, the Redeemer, the Messiah King. He comes to save people not just from ailment, but ultimately from the wrath of God and from their sins. He shows us this in the healing of the paralytic. It's brought to him at the beginning of chapter 9. He says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders look at each other and say, this man is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. That's exactly Jesus' point. He says, so that you know I have this power, let me authenticate it for you. His sins really are forgiven. I say to you, get up and go home. And the man obeys. The crowds are afraid, and they glorify God. And then Matthew calls, then Jesus calls Matthew, the author of our gospel, to himself. We discover that Matthew is in league with the worst of the worst. He is a tax collector, a traitor to the Jews, and yet Jesus chooses him. He says, follow me. Matthew follows him. And this is with no small amount of controversy. The Pharisees come to his disciples and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gives them a proverb, a diagnosis, and then his mission statement. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But we might amend it and say, you all think you are healthy, but you need to realize that you're sick. Because if you realized you were sick, you would know that you are the sinners that need to eat with me. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Same scene is going on, and we now have the disciples of John the Baptist in verse 14. This is where we were last week. They come and say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus says, can the wedding guest fast when the groom is with them? And the big point is that the bridegroom brings joy. 
and that there is no room for grieving in the presence of the groom. Jesus is with them. Yes, he will be taken from them at the cross and they will mourn, but ultimately his presence brings joy. And he has promised to us, his people, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. He is with us wherever we will go. His very Holy Spirit indwells us. Indeed, we are united to him as his very body. Christians are to be a people marked by joy. Jesus brings joy. And so we come to this section where Jesus is continuing to teach about the joy he brings when he is interrupted in verse 18 of chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, behold. Again, note how Matthew uses the word behold throughout to get our attention. He wants us to look at what he's talking about. Allow his words to paint for us a picture. There are two beholds we're going to come to in our text and they, they work together. This is a sandwich. We talk about literary sandwiches pretty often here. Mark uses them a lot. This is the only one in Matthew. And what happens in those sandwich, we always say the middle part of a sandwich defines what the sandwich is. Got a hamburger in there. Got a hamburger. Uh, tuna in there. It's a tuna sandwich. Ham, it's a ham sandwich. You know, cucumber, it's a cucumber sandwich, I guess. That's gross, but whatever. Uh, here, the middle is helping us to understand what's on the edges. And here we have interrupting the story we're about to come to, a story of a, a immature sort of faith that Jesus delights to bless. And so what I think Matthew would have us see is he wants to intensify for us our need to have complete confidence. Maybe I should say our encouragement that we can have complete confidence in Jesus, because he always delivers. All right, so, so Matthew says, behold, we're in verse 18, a ruler we know from other passages, this ruler's name is Jairus, came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. Matthew, in his usual fashion, has sort of stripped this account of all the details. If you look in Mark and Luke's accounts, they are much longer than Matthew's here. And both of them let us into a little secret that Matthew has left out. The girl is not actually dead at this point. Matthew has telescoped his account for two reasons. One, the sake of brevity. He's in a hurry. And two, for the sake of focus. He wants our attention on the miraculous work of Jesus as he turns death to merely sleep. The girl is as good as dead. My daughter has died, but come. If you lay your hand on her, she will live. Such is the authority of Jesus. This is a desperate man. Put yourself in his shoes. I've never encountered this myself personally, but some of you have, and others of you may. The weight of sorrow that would accompany 
the illness of a child must be almost unbearable. I assume this man has sought medical attention for his daughter, would have been around the age of 12, looked for ways for her to get well, cried out to God in prayer, and heard nothing in response. And yet he remains hopeful. His hopes are in this Jewish rabbi he knows very little about. And so he comes. He says, Jesus, but if you put your hand on her, she will live. Darius gives us a model for how to approach Jesus. Remember, it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of heaven. We are to approach Jesus needy and full of faith, full of confidence in Jesus' ability to do whatever he decides. Jesus does not have to heal this man's son. In fact, there are plenty of people that Jesus did not heal. And he has his own reasons for doing that. There are plenty of people today that get sick and ill and live with chronic conditions, and Jesus chooses not to make them well. You go, why? I don't know why. But I know ultimately it's for the good and for the glory of God. I always think about Job when he asks why at the end of the book. He's never given an answer to his why questions. Instead, God says, don't ask me why, but know who I am. Because when you know who I am, then you will recognize everything is working together for the good of those called according to my purpose, for the good of those who love me. Many times in life, we find ourselves like the Apostle Paul, crying out for God to take some thorn from us over and over again, and yet God doesn't do it, but instead, instead says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. Friend, if you are here and you have encountered suffering and longed for healing, I submit to you that that is a good thing. Keep asking God with confidence. He has the power to deliver from evil, the power to make well. Yet let me caution you with an encouragement. God might be allowing that trial to come into your life. He, he may have brought that difficulty into your life or to someone else's life so that he could demonstrate his grace is sufficient. He could show his power is made perfect in weakness. And yet, that's not what Jesus decides to do here. This man's daughter was to die so that Jesus might bring glory to his name and demonstrate his power and authority. My daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. 
and Jesus rose, 